this is Maureen Milliken. And this is Rebecca Milliken, and this is Crime and Stuff. The podcast. You would do if you had nothing better to do. And even though we're recording this on uh, December 27th, 27th, it'll be our first recording of 2021. Uh, yes. Our first episode. Before Did we get... you have a good Christmas? Yeah. You? Yeah. Yeah, it was good. Except yeah. for Hannah got exposed to COVID and we had to get tested. Right, we all got it tested. Good. It was a yes. small portion of our family, which was nice. We had a nice time. And Santa was good to us. Yes. And it was that was Christmas fun. Eve. Actually, Christmas was nice, too, because I just spent it at home by myself. I did nothing. Didn't I have to deal with... I forced mom to watch old movies with me. I just wanted to talk about one thing before we start. All right. That I was just on Twitter, mm. and there's some semi-controversy, I don't know what you would call it, about Hilaria Baldwin, who is married to Alec Baldwin. Apparently, she has been faking a Spanish background and accent for 10 years. Mm. She was actually born in Boston. Wow. That's <laughs> hard she to has, fake, fake but an she accent. Has a, and I know nothing about this woman except for that I'd seen her in pictures and like People magazine or whatever. So I, I, it doesn't really matter to me. But I was just thinking how embarrassing it, is. it would be to be in the public eye, and I don't know how she got away with it for so long, because you'd think that people that grew up with her would be like, excuse me, that's Hillary, whatever, her right. name is Hillary Hillary O'Hara. <laughs> and no, it's Hillary, and, and like, she, I went to high school with her, why the hell? But like, they have this clip of her on the Today Show, I think it was with Savannah Guthrie or somewhere where she's cooking, and she doesn't know the word for cucumber, <laughs> for cucumber, and like... The English word or the Spanish word? The English word, she's like, how do you say uh, cucumber? <laughs> and someone's like, well, I guess in Boston, they don't know the words. I don't really, I mean, I, I understand why some people are angry. Right. But at the same time, I just feel like how, the main thing I think of is how cringy it yes. is and how freaking embarrassing it, Right. And it, it must is. be exhausting to keep that. Yeah. And uh -huh. I'm unclear as to whether Alec has been on the rampage against people, whoever reported oh, it. And, it's nice. He's sticking and up for his woman. I wonder, though. Did he know? I mean, like, he must have met her parents. Like, her parents are still alive. Well, also, She's not that if you're, old. If you're faking She's in an, her 30s, I think. If you're faking an accent, how do you do it with somebody around all the time? I don't I don't even know how I know. that would work. Well, so, well, people were saying that it was different. Like, and see, the thing is, I don't know who really anything about her and never would mm -hmm. watch a show where she was a guest because I no, don't care I, I have enough no interest about her. In her. Right. So it reminds I, me of those guy of the guys who have lied about their um military background. Like Brian what's his name? The actor. Um, I know. It's so Yeah, it's so embarrassing when you're found out. And then like the other thing it reminds me of, although this wasn't a famous person, is once when I was working, um and I used to work at a bookstore in high school and someone Mr. I worked paperback. with um, the Mr. Yes, paperback Mr. in Augusta Maine. Yeah, so I was working with somebody who was old, a little older than me, and this woman came in and was talking to her for a while. The woman had a German accent. And then she left. I said something about the I said, oh, you know, somebody that you, you know, this is an old friend of yours or something. And Ellen's like, yeah, but she's not German. So I was trying not to laugh the whole time I was talking to her. Yeah. She's like, she lived in Germany. 
but there's no reason for her to have that accent. No. <laughs> like, uh, you know, but it, no. it is kind of weird. It is weird. Whatever. I did tweet about uh, Hilaria Baldwin, so you can... Uh, I'll check it out. Yeah, at some I thought point. it was kind of funny. So, you do you have an update? Because I, I, I have do. I have a very very short update, but I, you can do yours first. Okay, mine is one. not mine is not short, unfortunately. Oh, oh sorry. Yay! No, I'm just kidding. Hopefully, it'll be interesting. Mine would be longer if I cared that much, but I. I that's what no. she's. That's what he said. Put it this way: episode twenty nine. Oh, that's all you need to know. That's right. Okay. 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 I'll do mine first. First of all, just in general. Two more unarmed black guys have been shot. Andre Morris Hill, 47, in Columbus, Ohio. He was armed with a cell phone in a private garage attached to a home. A neighbor called the police because a car was running, and it was the wee hours of the morning, so they were concerned. And Ooh. So the cop took care of that problem. Um, Three- how many guys have been shot that are holding cell phones? Lots of them. Um, yeah. They yeah. must look a lot like Maybe guns, there's an app. I guess. An app that shoots, that makes it dangerous. Three <laughs> weeks know. earlier, on December 4th, also in Columbus, Casey Goodson Jr., armed with a bag of sandwiches from Subway, mm. was returning from a dental appointment, and he was shot by a member Aww. of the Franklin County Sheriff's Police. According to the Washington Post shooting database, it chronicles all police shootings in the U.S. and has since 2015 and breaks them down into gender and race and what weapons that's interesting yeah unarmed people shot by police in the u.s this year 17 are white 13 black six hispanic and four unknown and i think this was before casey so probably 14 black and i know some people would say that means white people are more are shot more often but when you look at the fact that more than 80 percent of the population is white and 13 percent is black it means that you know, go do a little math that uh, black people are shot at more than twice the rate of white people. Mm, yes. But that's not what I really want to talk about. I okay. just wanted to bring it up. This is kind of an update to episode 77, Say Her Name, our Brianna Taylor and other black women shot for no good reason by police episode. And I want to talk about Anjanette Young, who many of you are probably familiar with. She's the woman who in 2017 had just gotten home from work, was getting undressed in her bedroom when a mm. bunch of cops broke down her door, raided her apartment, made her stand there naked mm. for half an hour as they milled around. Ugh, God. And there's a lot of politics going on about this because it was in Chicago and every, you know, how Chicago is, uh, yeah, you know, everything's politics. And I don't want to get into all that. The reason it all came out more than two years later, more than three years later, sorry, I, I can't add, is because she's suing the Chicago police, like many people, it turns out, who have been the victims of botched raids in Chicago, which apparently is like the subset of what the police do there. She had filed a Freedom of Information request for the video, and Channel 2 in Chicago did a story on it, and that's kind of how it came to light. The latest news is she's agreed to meet privately with Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot, and a lot of the politics have to do with the, what the mayor knew and stuff, and I don't want to get into all that. And Jeanette has also requested that there be a public forum with the police superintendent and the alderman, and that just came out today, her lawyer said, and there's no response on whether that's going to happen. What I really want to talk about is what happened and why, and it's the kind of thing we talked about in episode 77, these police raids. And also, I'm pretty sure I should have gone back and looked 
but I didn't. That that's also the episode that I did my NNW rating on Peace Officer, the documentary that also goes into police raids and what a threat to public think, safety. Yes. So I want to talk about kind of the raid itself, and all my information is from the Chicago Tribune and CBS Two in Chicago, and I may be quoting them um, verbatim at some points. They're the ones who did the work on this, and I'm just passing it along. But Young, a licensed social worker, heard a loud banging noise at her door around Mm. 7 p.m. on February 21st, 2017. It was police who were repeatedly hitting her door with a battering ram. Ah. And fortunately for everyone, nine of them actually had body cams that were recording at the time. Nine? How many? Okay. There were uh, at least 14 of them. because Because they all want to get in on the act. It happened so fast, and of course she was, like, shocked and didn't know what was going on, as any of us would be. So and she was naked. She didn't have time to put any clothes on. Ah. As they rushed inside with guns drawn, and they're yelling, Police search warrant! Hands up, hands up, hands up! And if oh, you watch, like, Peace Officer or anything else like that, you know, they're not even yelling in a way that you can either respond to or understand what they're saying. It's just the screaming designed to keep you off guard and to scare the shit out of you. And that's what they managed to do to this poor woman. And I will mention that she's black because this happens to them disproportionately. So the video shows that seconds later, she's in her living room, shocked and completely naked with her hands up. And these are all guys, by the way. Most of them white. Most of them probably in their 20s and 30s. And she's probably in her 40s, maybe early 50s. An officer put her hands behind her back and handcuffed her as she stood there naked. She's yelling, what's going on? There's no one else here. I live alone. What's going on here? You've got the wrong house. I live alone. And they're not, like, responding to her at all. And she told CBS2, it's one of those moments where I felt I could have died that night. Like, if I would have been made, like, if I would have made one wrong move, it felt like they would have shot me. And I truly, she says, I truly believe they would have shot Mm. me. And Mm -hmm. I understand why she feels that way. And that was, of course, before Breonna Taylor. But uh, there's plenty of history to back her up. And she was crying and sobbing. She repeatedly asked them who they were looking for. They did not respond to her. They're milling about her house. (laughs) You can see the video. And her hands are bound behind her back. And one guy takes a short coat and he kind of puts it on her shoulders. But it only covers her shoulders and upper back. So her front is still completely naked. She's handcuffed behind her back. And the officers, again, are standing around, kind of wandering around the kitchen, the living room, the hallways, and she's standing there naked. And after a few minutes, one of them gets a blanket, and he kind of does the same thing the other guy had done with the coat. So it's covering her back, and it keeps slipping off. And she says, they just threw something over me, and my hands are behind me, and I'm handcuffed. So there's no way for me to secure the blanket around me. And the blanket continues to slide open and expose her body. And one video clip shows an officer was standing like right in front of her but made no attempt to cover her and another walked over and held the blanket closed and she continued to ask tell me what's going on you've got the wrong house you've got the wrong house there's no one else who lives here you've got the wrong house and finally the sergeant says to her there's no one else who lives in this apartment and she says no no one else lives here and she told police at least 43 times that they were in the wrong house 
She repeatedly asked them to allow her to get dressed and told them she believed that they had bad information. At one point, she goes, oh my God, this cannot be right. How is this legal? A CBS2 investigation found that police failed to do basic checks to confirm whether they had the correct address before getting the search warrant approved. Are they, can I ask, were they all men? Yes, at this point, yes. Okay. According to the Chicago Police Department's complaint for search warrant, one day before the raid, which they filed to get the warrant, a confidential informant told the lead officer on the raid that he recently saw a 23-year-old man who was a known felon with a gun and ammunition there at the apartment, CBS2 hmm. reported. The document said the officer found a photo of the suspect in a police database and showed it to the informant who confirmed that that was the guy. The officer then drove the informant to the address where the informant claimed the suspect lived. Despite no evidence in the complaint that police made efforts to independently verify the tip, like conducting surveillance or additional checks as required by policy, the search warrant was approved by an assistant state's attorney and a judge. Mm. Turns out, though, and you will not be surprised by this, the address was wrong. Mm. The guy lived next door to Young. He had no connection to her. It's not even clear if they knew each other. And the zinger... CBS2 also found police could have easily tracked the suspect's location and where he really lived because at the time of the raid, he was wearing an electronic monitoring device. Oh, my God. And Young said that piece of paper, meaning the warrant, gives them the right to, you know, that says you can do X, Y, Z based on that paper. So if you get it wrong, you are taking 100% control of someone else's life and treating them in a bad way. And I'd just like to say, as Maureen here, that even if it is the right address, this is a shitty way for the criminal justice system to work and for people to be treated. Even yeah. if they're raiding someone's apartment, even if it's a 23-year-old black kid who's a felon who may have a gun, or a middle-aged black woman who they may want to raid her apartment for some reason and they do have the right one, it's just the wrong way to treat people. CBS2 also said that the body camera video raises questions about the approval of the warrant. In one clip, officers in a squad car review their notes and can be heard talking. It wasn't initially approved or some crap, one officer said. What does that mean, the second officer asked. I have no idea, the first officer said. I mean, they told him it was approved, then I guess that person messed up on their end. Citing an ongoing investigation by the Civilian Office of Police Accountability, COPA, The Chicago Chicago Police Department also wouldn't comment when CBS2 asked about the raid or why officers acted solely on an informant tip. (laughs) And Anjanette Young made multiple attempts to ask the police the same thing that night. Who are you looking for? She kept asking, as well as, I've been living here for four years and no one lives here but me. And I'm telling you this is wrong and I have nothing to do with whoever this person is you're looking for. She said the way officers treated and spoke to her amplified the trauma she experienced. Mm. They frequently didn't respond to her questions and they act like she's not even there in parts of it. If you Gee, watch what video. a surprise. I know, I'm like, yeah, typical men. Yeah, exactly. Oh, the, the sergeant... They won't answer the question. The sergeant does say at one point, okay, okay you don't have to shout oh my god i know and she goes i don't have to shout this is fucking ridiculous you got me in handcuffs i'm naked and you kicked my house in i keep telling you you've got the wrong place about 13 minutes into the raid a female officer who arrived later than the guys did walks young to her room so she can get dressed but they put the handcuffs back on her after she gets dressed and police continue to question her 
And the sergeant says, ma'am, there's no firearms in this place. And she says, and I guess this was repeated several times, and she's like, there's no gun in this place. No, no, no. I'm a social worker. I've been a social worker for 20 years. I follow the law. I don't get in trouble for anything. I don't do illegal stuff. I'm not that person. You've got the wrong information. The sergeant then said to the cop, who got, who's the one who got the warrant, I want to have a conversation with you. Let's go talk outside. So they go outside, but the body cameras go off. Mm-hmm. And the Chicago Gee. Police Department did not respond to CBS 2's questions about why the camera was turned off. But huh. CBS 2 said it found that pattern both during wrong raids and in the police department's everyday interaction with civilians that cameras would just suddenly go off. Gee, it's so it's so interesting how they can Those just cameras. Go I guess off they're faulty like or that. something. Yeah. yeah. After nearly 20 minutes, police finally take Anjanette's handcuffs off. Toward the end of the whole thing, which lasted about half an hour, the sergeant says to her, I do apologize for bothering you tonight. I assure you that the city will be in contact with you tomorrow. And he also says, is there anything I can do right now? And she's like crying. She's in tears. And she goes, just leave me and let me move on. This is so crazy. And he says, again, I do apologize for meeting you this way. I will do everything I can to get the door fixed. And then some of the cops try to fix the door with a hammer, mm-hmm. but they have broken it down with a battering ram. So <laughs> when that doesn't work, they try to wedge an ironing board in between the door to keep it shut. And Young said it was surreal watching the body camera video later when she finally was able to get it of what happened to her. She, it was two years afterwards that she finally got it and watched it. Even though the incident happened in February 2019, the um, police investigation unit didn't open the investigation or contact Young until nine months afterwards, Hmm. after CBS2 first broke the story online. On November 25th of this year, more than a year after they began investigating, COPA said it's still in the process of serving allegations and conducting all necessary officer interviews. Young says she's still traumatized and she leans on her church for healing and support. She believes she has a responsibility to use her voice to protect others. When that video was first shown on TV a few weeks ago, you know, people are like, ah, oh, you know, why is she letting herself be shown naked? And in fact, there were people I saw on Twitter and stuff who felt she was being... Like, she didn't realize it was on there or, and she was being exploited. But she's like, no, I want people to see what happened to me. So I, And she said ah. that police have to do something about conducting search warrants and making sure they have the right address. It doesn't seem like it's that hard since they didn't even follow yeah, the maybe policy. They shouldn't, maybe they should try to be competent. Yes. And she says, the work is warranted. They need to do the work, but they need to do it right. They can't just callously do it and leave people's lives in ruins because they got it wrong. And meanwhile, the the Chicago Tribune reported that 12 of the officers were placed on desk duty. And again, that was after it all came out in November. It wasn't like two years ago when it happened Mm -hmm. because, believe it or not, this is normal. Like, that's one of the things, like, when people say, oh, most of the cops are good, this real dichotomy between what cops think is being a good cop and what normal human beings think it is. But one who's named as a defendant in her lawsuit, which she filed last year, is also among several officers accused in a separate suit accusing police of executing a search warrant in the wrong residence. And this is from the Tribune. In that case, officers were accused of entering an apartment November 7, 2017, and pointing guns at Jack and Peter Mendez, ages 5 and 9, at the time. And Aww, their, I know, boys. I know. And their parents. 
Officers had the boy's father, Gilbert Mendez, in handcuffs in front of the sons during the search of the house. Quote, upon entering the Mendez's apartment, officers were screaming and cursing abusively at Mr. and Mrs. Mendez in the boy's presence. Even after learning they were in the wrong apartment, officers not only did not explain their mistake, but they continued their illegal search. They found nothing illegal. They arrested and charged no one. When they finished searching, they simply left. Ugh. CBS 2 reports on another one, the Blass and Game family, who were wrongly raided by police in 2015. Jolanda Blass and Game's young sons said officers pointed guns at them, leaving them traumatized. Mm. Like dozens of other children, CBS 2 interviewed as part of a two-year investigative series. I felt scared for my life, said Jaden Blass and Game, who was 10 at the time of the raid, and they're pointing guns at him. CBS2 found that the suspect police were looking for in the Blasting Game raid had no connection to the family and had been in prison at the time of the raid. He'd been in prison for years, actually. What the hell? CBS2, in fact, has a documentary called Unwarranted that I'm going to try to find and watch. I didn't have time today, but it's about the trauma experienced by innocent children and families as a result Hmm. of the Chicago Police Department getting the address wrong and raiding the wrong apartments. And... This may really shock you, Becky, but it also (laughs) examines how black and Latino families are disproportionately affected Mm -hmm. by these raids. And Young says they are adding trauma to people's lives that will be with them the rest of their lives. Children have to grow up with that for the rest of their lives. The system is broken. And Keenan Salter, Young's attorney, said he believes wrong raids are violating families' constitutional rights. He said, if this had been a young white woman in Lincoln Park which I assume, this is Maureen, is a fancy neighborhood. By herself, in her home naked, a young white woman, let's just be frank, if the reaction would have been the same, I don't think it would have been. I think officers would have saw that woman, rightfully so, as someone who is vulnerable, someone who deserved protection, someone who deserved to have their dignity maintained. They viewed Ms. Young as less than human. And many of those families, by the way, in, you know, including Young, have filed lawsuits. Good. I think part of the problem isn't just that they're going to the wrong houses. Right. It's the how they treat place. people. It's Yeah. And how they conduct supposedly an investigation. I mean, you don't need to batter down someone's door. Right. And, and That's talk- not your fir- That shouldn't be your first mode. I mean, don't you knock? Give someone a chance to answer the door? It must have been a no-knock warrant. I mean, I know. And we talked about a lot of that in episode 77. And I strongly mm-hmm. urge people to, I think it's on Prime, to find find peace officer and watch it which goes into a lot of that stuff too but another officer named in young's lawsuit fatally shot a man Mm. on may 11 2019 in that case the officer shot and killed 26 year old cheryl brown when authorities say he got into an armed confrontation with police Hmm. the 14 officers named as defendants in the young lawsuit have together amassed more than 20 complaints throughout their chicago police careers and none of them led to any discipline And that's according to records kept by the Invisible Institute, a group that researches police and government accountability issues, the Tribune reported. The defendant in Young's lawsuit with the most complaints was a sergeant who had at least 11. And the Tribune wasn't naming any of them, any of the cops, since disciplinary charges hadn't been brought against any of them. And the law department, Chicago Law Department's top attorney, Mark Flessner, resigned over the scandal 
and that's the city law department, not a college one or anything. And two high-ranking staffers also left. The video came to light when Young got it through a freedom of information request to help with their lawsuit. And city um, lawyers had previously filed a request to have Young sanctioned for allegedly violating a confidentiality order on the video. Though the city later said it only meant her lawyer. It only wanted him sanctioned. Yeah, and then the city that. eventually filed paperwork seeking to drop the matter altogether. Though a judge said he is still weighing whether to take action against the lawyer. And I can just tell you, I know different states have different freedom of information laws. But in Maine, if one person gets a document through a freedom of information request, anybody can make that document public. Mm -hmm. Like if I got one just for my own personal use, I could give it to a newspaper and they could publish it. Mm -hmm. Because it's it's public information that's available to anyone. The Young case has also highlighted a recurring problem for the law department after Lightfoot's office disclosed that it failed to give Young's attorney all of the body camera footage of the wrongful police raid. A 2016 Chicago Tribune investigation found that of nearly 450 cases alleging police misconduct since former Mayor Rahm Emanuel took Mm. office, a federal judge had ordered the city to turn over potential evidence in nearly one in every five cases. In numerous cases, the city's conduct was found to be so inappropriate that a federal judge took the unusual step of handing down sanctions, according to the Tribune. Hmm. Rahm Emanuel's administration fought to keep secret a video, I think this one made the national news, showing white police officer Jason Van Dyke shooting black teenager Laquan McDonald 16 times, but Hmm. a county judge ordered his administration to release the video. Emanuel has since been dogged by accusations that he (laughs) covered up the scandal to preserve his 2015 re-election campaign, which he denies. And Chicago since then instituted a rule allowing the release of police shooting videos and audio within 60 days, and Mayor Lightfoot said she will pursue changes to make other video releases easier, Hmm. which I don't have a lot of faith in, so. I think the whole, and I know I'm not, uh, I'm not a, police officer obviously and i'm not an expert on policing but to me it's common sense if you start out in this i'm sorry i can't remember her name anjanette young anjanette even if she was some kind of a criminal which she wasn't bashing in her door and screaming with a a whole army of people why do you need to do that and also why don't you try doing some investigating just checking the address Instead of just busting down people's Because this is so much more fun. I know. I really think that's really what it is. I I think so, too. It has to do with the type of people that some of the type of people that want to be that type of police officer. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the problems. Right. Right. You know, you've got these people who are on a power trip. Mm-hmm. And they want to be macho and they want to do all the fun things. They look at Sorry, it like a military it. action. Yes, and it's not. Right, and that's it part of the problem. It shouldn't be. So anyway, you had an update on episode oh, 29. I yes, can't wait. I do. Well, my update is not going to be very long. As I've said, every time I have one of these updates, I can't deal with it. Episode 29 Wicked Bad Chemistry was about Annie Dukin, who was a, a chemist at the Hinton Lab in Boston, and she tested drugs for cases that were being prosecuted, and she faked a lot of positive tests and got a lot of people in jail. And Massachusetts is still paying for it, and that was 13 years ago, I think. They're still paying for it. So this newest story is the district attorney, Suffolk County District Attorney Rachel Rollins, is now 
investigating another person that worked at that lab. We talked about Annie Dukin and Sonia Farak, who both worked at Hinton Lab, although Sonia got busted for her bad chemistry when she was working in the western part of Massachusetts when she was doing drugs on the job. But she also worked at Hinton Labs with Annie Dukin. This other chemist, Della Saunders, worked there at the same time. And the reason they started investigating her is because one of the defendants in a drug case, she was the the witness that testified because she tested his drugs. In his appeal, one of the things about his appeal was that they did not investigate her. When they started investigating Annie Dukin, they were supposed to investigate everything, and they said she was the only bad actor. So one of the parts of his appeal was that they never investigated her. She was suspect because her uh, testing, the amount of tests that she was able to complete was almost as high as Annie Dukin's. Oh, wow. She was third only to Annie and Sonia. He was saying she should have been investigated a little more. So Della Saunders, when they contacted her by the Boston Globe, said she didn't wasn't aware of it, of the investigation against her, and she wasn't that concerned about it. My enough. guess is she could have done something, or a savvy defense lawyer could have said, look, they were supposed to investigate everybody, and they didn't. Yeah, which so, is basically so the they other didn't, they're saying. Right. So they didn't investigate the woman who did your testing, so that's a great grounds for they an claim, appeal. They claim they did, but there isn't any proof that they investigated yeah. anybody. As we talked about in other updates, they didn't really have a desire to find out the truth because right. it's already costing almost $40 million to the state. Mm-hmm. There's thousands and thousands of cases had to be be overturned. They just, it was like a Pandora's box if they were going to start investigating people. I'll tell you if they find something out about her. Right. I swear to God, why I ever did that. Little did you know. I should have known. I know. Anyway, so that's my update, such as it is. But anyway. So you have part two, and I didn't look it up, so I don't know what's going on. Well, you must have some inkling, but as Becky said, this is part two of the murder of Jody Parrick. If you haven't listened to the first part, you probably want to go back and do that, and I know when someone tells me that, I'm all, fuck you, I'll listen to what I want. But in this case, it does help with the narrative flow. But whatever, listeners. Do what you want. It's your choice. I did notice that with our Grandview Topless Coffee Shop two-parter, we have more downloads for the second part than the first Hmm. part. And okay, you guys, you're missing the first part. That's all I... But anyway, today's information comes largely from the work of reporter Ken Kolker of WOOD-TV Channel 8 in Grand Rapids. Published information from the Center for Wrongful Convictions at Northwestern University. The podcast, Wrongful Convictions, False Confessions, with Steve Drizzen and Laura Nyrider, who I love. I I like that Wrongful Convictions podcast, and they have different, they also have a junk science one with somebody else, and just plain old Wrongful Convictions, False Confessions (laughs) is my um, favorite. I haven't. I haven't listened to that, but well, I don't should. know. It might make me mad. It will, but it's oh. a good mad. Anyway, okay. the Detroit News and the Sturgis Journal, which was my main source last episode. I also got some really good information about the Reed interrogation technique from an article mm. written by Wyatt Kaczynski for the S- Seattle Journal of Social Justice. Before we get into the story... I want to once again talk for a minute about, quote, good cops, unquote. And as I said last time, 
People complain that most cops are good and that the reporting on bad cops makes it look like all cops are bad when most cops are really good. In fact, I kind of laughed for the past 24, 48 hours about the explosion in Nashville. It's not funny. But all of a sudden, all the TV channels I was watching started talking about the heroic cops who ran there to help. And granted, it was brave of them, but it felt like this PR effort to do Mm -hmm. like a good, let's do a good cop story and talk about Mm -hmm. the hero cops and the good things they're doing. And I know I sound cynical, Mm -hmm. but I think we've all learned that cynicism. And also, aside from the concept that I mentioned last time, that if good cops don't speak out, they support the badness, I think there's a huge gray area about what the normal person would consider a good cop and what cops consider a good cop. And I think people, among other things, speaking of Rachel Rollins, the Suffolk uh, County DA and stuff, should watch Netflix documentary Trial 4, for instance, and you'll see some cops supporting some really outrageous bad cop behavior that makes a mockery out of the criminal justice system. And to me, those those cops are bad, too. If they're going to support that kind of stuff, they're bad, too. And look at Anjanette Young, you know, who we just talked about. Those cops, I think, would all consider Mm -hmm. themselves good cops. That's normal cop behavior. They've said as much, and other cops have said so too. And that's why there was no no discipline of the cops. There was no outrage in the ranks Mm -hmm. when it happened. Now, two years later, when it's been all over TV with this poor naked woman crying Mm. as all these male cops stand around treating her like shit, and, and now people are outraged because... People have seen it, as we talked about. So that whole, nobody ever talks about the good cops, most cops are good, just doesn't wash with me. And I think in the story of the Jody Perrick murder, a lot of cops would also support what the cops did. That they were, quote, good cops looking to bring someone to justice for murdering a little girl. The problem is, this kind of narrow-minded, we can do no wrong, we can lie, but you can't behavior doesn't do anyone justice. It just makes a mockery out of the justice system. It doesn't help Jody. It doesn't help all the Jodies of the world or their families or anyone else. So, quick recap. Last episode, after seven years of a, quote, investigation, unquote, that focused on DNA, the police finally found a DNA match for the murder mm-hmm. of 11-year-old Jody Perrick. It was quite by accident. The match, Daniel Furlong, assaulted another young girl who managed <sighs> to get away from him. Still, they were focusing on the guy they, quote, investigated for seven years, but could only charge with perjury for lying to them. Free McCann. So what happened after Furlong was arrested? A lot. First, Furlong. Jody Perrick was killed November 8, 2007. The next day, the FBI canvassed the neighborhood in the area. This was in Constantine, Michigan, a town of 2000 in southwest Michigan, small town. The FBI canvassed the next day talking to people. The records show they, quote, talked to Furlong, but he was not considered a suspect. He didn't raise any suspicions. When police canvassed the area again in 2011, when they re kind of reignited the investigation, he wasn't spoken to, and police speculate he may move to White Pigeon, a town four miles away by then. Furlong was living in White Pigeon, a village not very different from Constantine, and as I said, only four miles away, when on July 28, 2015, he asked a 10-year-old girl, Mackenzie Straffer, mm. who was riding by on her bike, to come into his garage where he lived at the Colonial Estates Mobile Home Park to help him move some stuff. Ugh. The girl said that once Sorry. she was inside, 
He pushed her against a car and put his hands over her mouth, telling her to shut up. He reached into a toolbox and pulled out a steak knife, and she screamed and was able to struggle away from him. In the struggle, he scratched her shoulder with his fingers. While she was struggling, he also reached for an extension cord, she later told the police. Furlong's story was that he put his arm around her and told her she could go because he realized the items he needed moved already had been moved and he didn't need her yeah, help. Yeah, you're going to ask a 10-year-old girl to help you move stuff. Maybe they that were makes small a lot things. Of sense. Small things. Yeah, sure. You know, empty soda cans or something. <laughs> he also denied putting his hand over her mouth or getting a knife. This was when he was initially arrested. Police got a search warrant of Furlong's home and recovered several steak knives and extension cords. They also found a list tacked up in his garage with girls' names that he later said um, was other girls he planned to target. He didn't say that right away, but that was later. When Furlong was first arrested in August 2015, a couple weeks after the assault on the girl in White Pigeon, intrepid Constantine police chief Mark Honeysett said he was not considered a person of interest in Jody Parrick's murder, Hmm. the Sturgis Journal reported. But that doesn't mean we won't be investigating him, Honeysett said. He also said on the Parrick case, investigators, quote, have not had any significant tips in quite a while. When Furlong was arrested, police said they were surprised. Usually if someone's a sexual predator, they don't start doing it when they're in their 60s. And he was um, Mm -hmm. 65 at the time, so... hmm. No shit, they don't. But a few weeks later, in mid-September, Furlong's DNA matched the DNA that had been found on Jody Parrick. Mm -hmm. When St. Joseph County Prosecutor John McDonough was asked when Furlong had become a suspect in Jody's murder, McDonough said, Yesterday. And it is yet another instance in this case of police congratulating themselves for a job well done when it was something they didn't have anything to do with. <laughs> McDonough, at some point after Furlong's DNA matched what was found on Parrick, told the Sturgis Journal that the suspicious situation surrounding the White Pigeon assault prompted investigators to get Furlong's DNA and send it to a Michigan State Police crime lab. Yet, an article a few weeks before in the Sturgis Journal when Furlong was first arrested, said that a new law that went into effect Mm. in January 2015 in Michigan requires DNA to be collected at the time of arrest from any person accused of committing or attempting to commit a felony. Mm -hmm. Previously, it was collected upon conviction. That DNA is then run through the system to see if it comes up with any matches. So maybe some cops, though not all, thought Furlong was connected to Jody's murder, what they thought had nothing to do with the DNA being checked that was just standard operating procedure because of the new law. Yep. So back to Furlong. I wonder, I wonder, could there have been any red flags about Daniel Furlong? Ones that were more obvious than the perceived ones about Ray McCann, who they'd been hounding for seven years? Let's look. Around the time of Jody's murder in 2007, a young woman was running, or as the article said, jogging. <laughs> I always figure people who don't run are, um, are the ones who say jogging. Was running in a road race, so she was not jogging, in Constantine, and it doesn't say her age, when a man in a pickup truck slowed down beside her and told her she was last and that he had been sent to pick her up really? and she should get in his truck. She refused. She thought it was weird and kept running. And she reported it to police, but, quote, nothing came of it, unquote, according to the Sturgis Journal, which I take to mean that police just didn't do anything about it. When Furlong was arrested, the young woman, who by then lived in 
Papa, <laughs> said she had immediately recognized his face. She just about had a panic attack when she saw who it was, Police Chief Mark Honeyset no told shit, the paper. No Mark. <laughs> Honeyset said that about four years or so before Furlong's arrest, a girl who walked past his house on her way to school reported a man there was, quote, watching her intently. That yeah. complaint also did not prompt further investigation, the newspaper said. Since Furlong's arrest, several girls at the White Pigeon Mobile Home Park, where he lived, told police that Furlong would sit on a bucket outside his home and watch them and offer to take them places alone. Now, you can't arrest a guy for watching girls intently, and it's possible none of those girls ever said anything to anyone about him, but how much do you want to bet that they did and were brushed off? Also, if he was doing it in White Pigeon, it's likely he was doing it in Constantine. And the yeah, one girl, right. that one girl who had the balls to go to the police and complain just so she could be laughed out of the room was probably not the only one. I can't help but wonder if when the FBI canvassed the neighborhood in 2007, or when the state police did it again in 2011, anyone mentioned the creepy guy down the street who used to stare at girls and that was brushed off too. I was just going to say, if they're looking for someone who's a, a predator targeting kids, mm-hmm. they should have a, probably a female officer, but they should have someone talk to the kids. Right. Because the kids will, won't... Right. It's not even clear what they were asking, and I, yeah, I'm getting I to that. When okay. the FBI canvassed the neighborhood, they actually didn't really talk to Furlong much at all. Quote, <laughs> they primarily talked to his wife, Prosecutor McDonough oh, wow. said. She didn't know he was involved in any of this. And my guess, again, because no one has said one way or the other, is that the FBI wasn't looking so much for suspicious neighbors, but more that they were asking people if they saw anything suspicious in the neighborhood the night of the murder. So they weren't saying, you know, do you have any neighbors who seem like predators? Or weren't trying to gauge even... asking if they saw McCant. And also, they probably weren't asking about, like, in general... That they were just asking about that night. What did you Mm -hmm. see that night? Yeah, exactly. McDonough, the prosecutor, told the Sturgis Journal after Furlong's arrest, I've lived here my whole life, and you don't expect people like this to be around here. Mr. Furlong... Please. uh, Mr. Furlong is a scary, scary individual. I've become very (laughs) jaded. Maureen says that you're a fucking criminal prosecutor and you don't think people like Daniel Furlong could be, quote, around here? What the fuck? You know, it's like you you expect like ignorant people who don't deal with crime to have these black and white issues of what a predator is. But for the the county's criminal prosecutor to be jaded and stunned because there's a sexual predator of girls, it's no fucking wonder (laughs) no one was able to investigate this case. Anyway, I know we shouldn't laugh, but, you know, how can you not? It's to keep from crying. Anyway, so about Ray McCann. Last episode, (laughs) we talked about the seven years before an arrest was made, the hunt for the DNA match, the constant pleas from police and prosecutors for people to come forward, the hints at progress, new technology, interesting tips, and more. We also talked about the 2010 change in Constantine Police Chief from Mark Honeysett to retired Michigan Mm -hmm. State Police Detective James Bedell. There was also the creation of a task force in 2011 that would be posted in Constantine to work on the case. 
We also talked about Bedell's close friendship with Jody's family and personal attachment to the case. Yeah, too attached. Yes, and there was McCann's subsequent arrest in April 2014 on perjury charges and his no-contest plea in February 2015 on one of those charges. Now we'll look at those seven years from another perspective. Ray McCann was well-known in Constantine, as I said, a small town of about 2,000 people in the southwestern corner of Michigan, He was a reserve police officer and also repaired trailers. Hmm. He was into youth sports, coaching teams, his three kids. I think he has three kids. It's hard to tell from the reporting. Two sons and a daughter, coaching their teams and also refereeing youth sports. He also had a karaoke machine set up in the basement. Mostly so he could impersonate Elvis. According to the Detroit News, his favorite song was Suspicious Minds, but I don't know if that's just, you know, somebody being cute. Anyway, before November 8th, 2007... It is a good song. It is, right. Before November 8th, 2007, everyone in town liked him. Quote, I couldn't name a single person who didn't like him. You couldn't pick someone less likely to do something illegal said Keith Cantrell, a longtime friend, and he told that to the Detroit News. McCann later told police he spent the day of November 8, 2007, playing a video game, apparently some NFL thing. If the mm. WOOD-TV's half-hour excellent report on the case is to be believed, every time they mention him playing a video game, they show this NFL. Maybe it's Madden. Or, I don't know much about video games. but At 8 p.m. that night, Joe Gilson, whose last name at the time was Carver, knocked on his door. She was Jody Perrick's mother, and she couldn't find 11-year-old Jody, who was supposed to be home by 5.30, and had left a friend's house at 4.45 to ride her bike the few blocks home. Not only did Gilson go to McCann because he was a reserve police officer, but also because his son, Pokey, was a good friend of Jody's. Pokey? M- Pokey, yep. I got that from the Detroit News, so it must be true. McCann immediately wanted to help and went out to help with the search. He checked in with Officer Marcus Donker, <laughs> who, who was the Constantine police officer who re- who'd responded after Jody's mother had called in to report her missing. According to McCann, he searched the streets, checked the dollar store, some playing fields, and also, fatefully, the Tumble Dam Trail, a walking trail near the river. He said he suggested to Donker that they check the cemetery, half-jokingly because it was only a week or so after Halloween, but also, if you remember from last episode, Jody's mother initially told the police, who told reporters, that the kids used the cemetery as a shortcut. Police later asked McCann why he didn't immediately go to the cemetery to look, and his reply was that he was checking in with Donker. He seemed to be implying that Donker was kind of the guy in charge and McCann was deferring to him. Still, it raised police's suspicions. Mm. Jody's body was found under an oak tree in the cemetery at 10.30 that night. She had been strangled, and she had some other injuries. Police were immediately suspicious of McCann. That night, he was read his rights, they photographed his hands, and took his clothes and his pickup truck away from him. Can I ask you something? Mm -hmm. And you may have said it in the last one. Did they say why they were immediately suspicious Because... because he told them they should check the cemetery. Oh, because... Uh, yeah. And that's and where he, they but found But he her. didn't check it. Yeah, okay. And I also think, although this hasn't been brought up in any, but I kind of mentioned this last week too, you know, you hear a lot of things on this where, oh, he was one of their own and yet they went after him. Yeah, My feeling but- is he was a reserve police officer and that immediately police in their macho way get their back up in a lot of cases and think of them as wannabe cops, fake cops, 
who they're suspicious of and think. Yeah, it makes me wonder, too, if somebody just, not that he deserved it, but if somebody just had, had they didn't like him. him. Like you were saying, they didn't like him. for. My feeling in general is it was just a case of somebody got it into their head that, ah, he asked about the cemetery and she was found in the cemetery. And so then he must have done it. after that, if you're not a good investigator, no matter what. Right. He wasn't arrested that night. And it's not clear what happened between him and then police chief Mark Honeyset hmm. from November 8th, 2007 to June of 2010, when James Bedell became police chief and Mark Honeyset, who had also been the village manager, just became the village, the village manager. Exactly. And as I talked about last week, Bedell was hired specifically to solve this case. It's clear, though, that whatever suspicions they had about McCann, now, nearly three years later, they hadn't gotten very far, and they were desperate to find the murderer. Once Bedell took over and the state police task force was formed a year later, they doubled down on the McCann quote-unquote investigation. Mm. Here are some of the things police told Ray McCann during the more than 20 interrogations over five years they had with him. We know scientifically that you touched her body. Mm. And when McCann said something like, maybe you think you can prove that, but Brian Fuller, the state police detective, said, it's not a thinking matter, it's proven. Hmm. We know that you put her in the cemetery. Mm. Somebody saw you driving out of the cemetery before her body was found. The police officer with you that night, I think that's Donker, is a suspect. You're not the only suspect. We know you haven't been truthful. You lied about being home most of the day Jody was killed. Your alibi is shot. We have you on surveillance video being around town that day. We know you own two pairs of handcuffs, not just the one you say you own. Your DNA was on Jody and hers was on you and in your pickup. Mm. The evidence about you is insurmountable. Hmm. You were on porn sites on your computer the day Mm. Jody was killed. We have the full investigation. We just don't know why you did it. Dam Furlong said he's a friend of yours. We've got video showing that nobody went to the Tumble Dam the time of night you said you did. And they Mm. told him they could prove his car wasn't there. And here are some of the things they told his family in those years, particularly after Bedell became chief. They told his wife he was having multiple affairs. Mm. They told her, his sister-in-law, his sister and other family members that his DNA was found on Jody and hers on him. They told them that sand found on her feet, despite the fact that her shoes and socks were on, was from the McCann's yard. Mm. They told his son Pokey, now a teenager, and he's the one who was Jody's friend, that McCann was a drug addict and probably selling drugs. Oh, my God. They also told Pokey that McCann was visiting gay chat rooms, gay sex chat rooms, talking about sexual encounters he'd had with men. When the son said he hadn't seen any homosexual behavior by his father... The cop told him he got it off the family's computer, so it was happening. The Detroit News viewed videos in which police told those lies to McCann's wife, Angela, his teenage son, Pokey, his sister, Ann Nussbaum, and his sister-in-law, Julie McCann. They may have told other people, but those were just the videos the Detroit News saw. And Ken Kolker from Channel 8. The news wrote that if any of the statements were supported by evidence, they weren't found by the Detroit News in a comprehensive review of police and court documents about the case. Because, in fact, none of those things said either to McCann or his family were true. Because McCann kept denying he had anything to do with Jody's murder, the police did the tried-and-true method of offering some possibilities that would give him an out to confess that would make him feel like he could explain it away. As anyone who's familiar with false confession story knows, 
This is a big thing that leads to false confessions. The person being interrogated is so desperate to make it stop that they'll tell the police what they want to hear, thinking it'll all sort itself out. In the spring of 2011, State Police Detective Brian Fuller tells McCann, and this is on video, that because his computer showed he was on porn sites that day, not playing a video game, and it's not clear if he actually was or not. I, he probably looked at porn, and they had him convinced that they could oh, tell God. he was doing it that day. Fuller told McCann that the prosecutors are going to say he killed Jody for sexual gratification, mm. but M McCann can avoid that happening by explaining why he really killed her. Oh, jeez. In another interview with Fuller and another detective, it's not clear who the other detective is, they say maybe McCann found her body earlier in the cemetery but was afraid that if it was just him, people would think he did it. And that's why he was so insistent they search there. And I think they were trying to get him to admit um, yeah, he, he was, was in, in the, the cemetery, cemetery earlier. Yeah. The cop goes back, the other cop, not Fuller, goes back to the fact prosecution may put forth the argument that Ray leads a double life, that he goes on porn and then goes out and trolls the streets looking to pick someone up. Another theory, a particularly offensive one, given that she was still a little girl who'd only turned 11 two months before her death, but hey, still female as far as the cops go, so it just goes to show. And all the cops on this, by the way, are men. All the cops mm, on this case are men. Yeah. But another theory they suggested to Ray is that Jody went to the McCann's house that day, insisting she would be able to date his son Pokey, and flipped out because the son didn't want to date her. While McCann was trying to calm her down, something happens to the point where she's going to hurt herself, so somehow she gets his handcuffs on her. Like, they wouldn't come out and say, you put the handcuffs on her, I don't know why. But somehow the handcuffs get on her because she's going crazy, and that then something doesn't happens. doesn't even make sense. I know. But to his credit... Okay. Ray, with that theory, like all the other ones, tells them it's bullshit. And if you watch the videos of Ray, he's constantly insists that he's innocent. He's appalled by the things they're saying. He even tells Fuller that he hopes when they both die, they meet in heaven, that Ray can say to Fuller, see, we're both here, I didn't do it. Which I feel bad for him. And <laughs> no matter what they say, he's just insistent that... Well, at least he, you know, didn't fall for it. Not that well, and in none of these, though, did he have a lawyer. Unfortunately. We'll get to him. that. In 2011, the police, at their wits' end, since Ray keeps denying he they had anything... They don't have many wits, though. I know. Since Ray keeps denying he had anything to do with Jody's murder, Chief Bedell tells Ray's wife, he's going to have to be charged. He'll get scared and he'll talk if we charge him. Mm. Jesus. So they serve him with what's called an investigative subpoena, which means he had to testify to them under oath. And I didn't have this nuance in my last story, mostly because none of the newspapers I read had this. I got this from the Innocent Project people. I assume that's either because the newspapers didn't think it was important, or the cops and prosecutors managing the information to the newspapers didn't think it was important or held it back. But this is what led to the perjury charge. He could have been charged with other things talking to the cops, and I was confused last week, what, how could he be charged with perjury? When was he under oath? And so this is it. Mm -hmm. um, although you can still get charged for, like, obstruction of justice and lying to the police. I don't want people to think it's okay. I got this information from Steve Drizzen of the Northwestern Wrongful Conviction Program, which with the University of Michigan similar program eventually um, took Ray's case several years later. You know, Steve Drizzen and me, we talk all the time. Oh, actually, it was on their website. Um, McCann, <laughs> for the first time after 20 interrogations, brought a lawyer with him. It should have been obvious, if not to Ray, then to the lawyer, that this was a last-ditch effort because they had no evidence. 
But according to Drizzen, the lawyer advised Ray to talk to him, talk to the cops, since his reputation was so tarnished in the community by now, it was making it difficult for him to function, and Ray could go talk to him, clear everything up. Although you'd think with 20 interrogations before that, you know, you got to kind of wonder why. But you also can't, if you get subpoenaed, you have to go. I just want to say, too, though, if you're a cop, and you have to interrogate someone 20 times, you're not doing a very good job. No. That's all. No, you might want to look at other things, like for a match for that DNA. (laughs) Subsequently, Ray was charged with five counts of perjury for lying under oath after that interview. Perjury in Michigan is a felony, and he could have gotten up to 20 years per count. Here are some of the things he supposedly perjured himself on. And remember, this under oath interrogation was five years after the murder took place. So, you know, you wonder what people can remember. He said at one point he'd seen Jody's mother, Joe Gilson, with a blonde, little blonde girl in her car and thought briefly that she'd found Jody. He testified he'd said to Jody's mom, Oh, good, you found her. Well, people said that a friend of Jody's named Katie, who was blonde, was with Jody's mother for a time that night. Jody's mom said Ray never said that to her. So that was one count of perjury. Oh, God. Another was that when police tried to make Ray explain why Jody's DNA was on his body, which, as we know, it wasn't, struggling to find an explanation, because that's what people do in response when the cops insist your DNA was somewhere and you're trying to figure out how it could have been there. He said that maybe Jody's mother had hugged Jody's body and then he had pulled pulled her away from Jody and he guided her you know, to his truck, and at some point, maybe the DNA had gone from, you know, Jody to her mother to him. Jody's mother said that never happened. He didn't pull her away. He didn't put her in his truck. Hmm. Ray said he only had one set of handcuffs. The cop said he had to have two, since all cops are issued two set of handcuffs, so he was obviously lying about how many sets of handcuffs he had. The big one was that he said he looked for Jody on the Tumble Dam Trail by the river. And the cops said they had video showing that was a lie. He was never there. In the end, the only one that stuck was the last one, and that's the one he was charged with perjury for. Hmm. A lot of his quote-unquote lies could be trying to remember what happened five years after the fact and trying to come up with explanations for things that there was no explanation for, like the DNA, because her DNA wasn't on him. (laughs) So the one they charged him with is particularly interesting because one of the cops, and I'm pretty sure it was Brian Fuller, testified under oath at a hearing that they had video showing Ray was not at the Tumble Dam trail. Well, it turns out the video was useless, and I'll talk more about that later. It wasn't pointed at the trail. It was hard to make out, and the video did not... (laughs) definitively show anyone was there or not because it wasn't even pointed at the trail. So I find it interesting that a cop perjured himself so that Ray could be charged with perjury. I mean, the cop deliberately perjured himself. Not He wasn't mistaken or anything like Ray could have been about some things. And he wasn't not able to remember. He lied that they had video showing something that they did not have. So the irony is the cop perjured himself so Ray could be charged with perjury. And Ray was actually telling the truth, which I think is very interesting. And everything I read about this, people are, they'll, like the Detroit News and stuff, they'll write, Brian Fuller testified under oath, blah, blah, blah. But nobody will come out and say he perjured himself, but lying under oath. Mm -hmm. Another interesting point about the one perjury charge against Ray is that when he was first charged, and, you know, I had gone back and read the newspapers at the time, 
The newspapers were told that his quote-unquote lie was that he met Officer Marcus Donker to talk, and the video showed that he and Donker didn't meet when and where he said he did. In one of the interviews, he said he couldn't have been at the cemetery half an hour before because he was talking to Marcus Donker at the time. So I'm wondering if they realized that they could actually place him talking to Donker or the video they thought would show he wasn't talking to Donker at the time wasn't, wasn't good. And that's why the story changed. But it's weird because newspapers, when he's first charged with perjury, all say that it's about a video, that video shows he wasn't talking to this one cop at the time. And when it's brought up later, when he's by the Innocence Project and everything, it's a totally different thing that the video is. Yeah, that is weird. In any case, by the time he pleaded no contest, the prosecution was going with the Tumbledam trail video story, and though none of the newspapers seemed aware of it, and I'd love to know the story behind why that changed. In any case, they nailed Ray for perjury by lying their heads off, and he pleaded no contest because they'd worn him down and alienated him from his entire family and community, and he wanted it to end. And they made it clear that they weren't going to stop till they could get him in jail. He had been in jail when he pleaded no contest for, I think, 10 months. He was sentenced to 20 months for perjury, time served. He could have been sentenced to 20 years, but the judge was leery about the whole thing. The judge was afraid people who are mistaken about things would be afraid to come forward. And it's like, no... No, no shit. shit. I, I can just imagine the mental toll at this point the whole thing had taken on Ray. He, well, can you imagine? They've alienated his family yeah. against him. They've, they've ruined his, his, his community. That, right. There are some other very insidious things that the cops did that I'll get into in a minute. But first I want to talk about the line a little. The police will tell you that what they did is okay. McDonough later pointed out to Channel 8 that they are, quote, accepted and legal methods, unquote. And I like this from a 2017 Detroit news story. St. Joseph County Prosecutor John McDonough, during an abbreviated phone call when he hung up on a reporter, defended the Hmm. perjury conviction, saying McCann had pleaded no contest to the charge, and McDonough stood by the police. A spokeswoman Hmm. for the Michigan State Police told the Detroit News, quote, Law enforcement officers use a variety of methods to either eliminate or identify individuals involved in the crime. That was her take on it. Hmm. The method the cops use, which many of you are aware of and have seen over and over again in false confession and wrongful conviction stories, is called the Reed Technique. That's R-E-I-D. The whole idea, in a nutshell, is that the interrogator starts from the position that he knows the person is guilty, then hammers away at the person to get him or her to admit that they are. Its nine steps are positive confrontation in which the suspect is told that there's evidence that shows he or she is a suspect, even if there's not. Then you give the person an opportunity to explain why they did it. They're not gonna at that point normally, (laughs) it says. They try to shift the blame away from the suspect to some other person or set of circumstances that prompted the suspect to commit the crime. Try to minimize the frequency of denials. And you can see this in the McCann interviews. At one point when he vehemently denies it, the state police cop says, I don't want to hear it. We know you did it, so stop denying you did it. I don't want to hear you say that oh anymore. My God. And the read technique thing says, at this point, the accused will often give a reason why he or she did not or could not commit the crime. Try to use this to move towards the acknowledgement of what they did. Reinforce sincerity to ensure that the suspect is receptive. The suspect will become quieter and listen. Move the theme of the discussion toward offering alternatives. 
if the suspect cries at this point, infer guilt. Pose, oh quote, the alternative question, giving two choices for what happened, one more socially acceptable than the other. The suspect is expected to choose the easier option, but whichever alternative the suspect chooses, guilt is admitted. Lead the suspect to repeat the admission of guilt in front of witnesses and develop corroborating information to establish the validity of the confession. And document the suspect's admission or confession and have him or her prepare a recorded statement. So the re-technique, the person's guilty. You let them know you know they're guilty and there's no other. And then every other Mm, thing is, is gymnastics trying to force the person to say they're guilty. I didn't dive deep on the Reed website to see what it says about the growing criticism as awareness grows of wrongful convictions, many tied to false confections. In fact, of the convicted people exonerated through DNA since 1989, about 29% had given false confessions. So that means 29% of the innocent people who have been Mm -hmm. exonerated with DNA, almost a third had given false confessions. The technique was perfected by John Reed, a former Chicago street cop who became a psychologist and polygraph expert (laughs) who consulted with police departments. Ironically, the case that made it famous ended up being a false confession. But um, the technique was first developed by a guy named Fred Imbau in 1942. He was a lie detector machine expert, too. And Reed Mm. caught on to it, and he began perfecting it in 1947, and what the case, thing. right? The case he used to make it famous was in 1955 to get a man in Lincoln, Nebraska, Daryl Parker, to confess that he raped and murdered his wife. Parker recanted the next day, but was found guilty on the strength of his confession and sentenced to life in prison. He was released in 2011. Ugh. This was in 1955. He was when another man confessed to the murder. Reed wrote a textbook with Joseph Buckley, and they were off to the races. He formed a company, John E. Reed and Associates, Inc., and the website shamelessly brags that it's the leading interrogation method in both the law enforcement and business communities. And it's a little chilling if you go on the website, all the companies that use it. I mean, are that many companies really interrogating their employees? I saw on uh, The Good Fight, yes. Yikes. They, They have a story based on that, and the two of the lawyers go to one of the seminars. It's scary. Most of the false confessions have things in common, like mentally or intellectually challenged suspects, Mm -hmm. people interviewed without an attorney or parent present, interrogated for more than three hours, people get worn down, or they're fed information about the crime by investigators so that they can feed it back. While some of these practices are prescribed by the Reed method, others are outside the protocol, but nevertheless frequently employed by Reed-trained interrogators, Wyatt Kaczynski said in his study. In 2017, Wicklander Zlasky, the leading private agency that trains police, said it will no longer train them in the Reed technique. They joined Hmm. most first world countries, including the UK and Canada and others that have rejected it. Britain has developed the PEACE, P-E-A-C-E, which stands for Preparation and Planning, Engage and Explain, Account, Closure, and Evaluate Method. This is where they have the person tell their story, you know, tell the entire story without being interrupted, and then they probe it for inconsistencies and question the person about what they've said. What a concept. Mm. And one other point I'd like to make about the read technique is that I think cops get tunnel vision. They want to close a case and will do whatever they can to do it. 
I know it can be frustrating when someone won't tell you they did it. I get that. But it gets to the point that they don't care about the truth. I think it's funny, for instance, how much they rely on polygraphs. They haven't been allowed in court for almost 60 years. And while cops give lip service that they're just a tool, they seem to take the results as gospel. I mean, how many times on Mm. TV, if you're watching a true crime show... Do you hear, well, he passed the polygraph, so he's no longer Mm -hmm. a suspect? Or, he didn't pass the polygraph, so obviously he's lying. If it's that obvious, then why isn't it admitted in court, you know? Uh, Though I couldn't find a lot of info on it, by the way, Ray McCann took two polygraphs, and he was constantly told in his interrogations that he didn't pass. And I don't know if that's true or not, but as far as I'm concerned, it's a tool just like the read technique. It's just a way to mislead people into implicating exactly. themselves. Why even have the, you know, the graphs and the needle going across? Just have a big red light that blinks, you know, like it in a does, cartoon. And what's the point? Yeah, you might as well just have some right. fake thing right. that, that you're telling them is a truth machine that we're hooking, it, like that thing because, the Scientologists right. use. It's because they want an easy button to help them figure out what happened or at least and, to and convict try to someone. manipulate right, somebody to manipulate somebody but between the night jody was killed november 8th 2007 to the day daniel furlong confessed to her murder police collected dna from 300 people accumulated about 600 pieces of evidence received about 1700 tips conducted 3,000 interviews and produced 7,000 pages of notes according God. to the detroit news none of it not one sentence, not one word of it, <laughs> connected Ray McCann to the murder. So while Ray was a suspect from the beginning, things really heated up, as I said, when James Bedell became police chief in June 2010. The former Michigan State Police detective not only doubled down on Ray, but started working the community big time, something mm. that ultimately led to much of Ray's quote-unquote perjury and the pressure on him. And as far as I'm concerned... It's even more insidious than the read technique and the lying. If you recall, last week I talked about how Bedell ingratiated himself with Jody's family. Mm-hmm. Remember the part about the 2012 spaghetti supper? Yes. To raise money for a gravestone? Bedell organized the supper. He actually designed her gravestone yes. himself. He, that was weird. I yeah, thought he that talked about designing her gravestone. Was... Right, how he visited her grave all the time. Ugh. How he'd had a photo of her on his door for four years, which I think I is weird. I would have thought it was him. I know, and I, and I think it's weird that he's had a photo on his door for four years because he'd only been chief by them for two years. And the photo said, love is like a hug, so hang mm. on to it, which he said was her favorite saying. Hmm. So this guy's sure Ray McCann did it, and he's telling him that in constant interrogation. And much of Ray's story about what happened that night depends on Jody's mother, who is also being worked by Bedell in a different way. Mm. I'm not saying he didn't genuinely have compassion for the family or care about Jody and her death, but you have the guy who's leading the investigation, organizing vigils, organizing fundraisers, and making himself part of the family. So who is the family <laughs> going to believe? I know. It's, it's you know, weird. After Ray was arrested in 2014 for perjury, Jody's mother, in an hour-long press conference, the first time she'd really talked to the press, told reporters she started questioning the inconsistencies in Ray's story about three years after Jody's death. I don't think it's any coincidence that Bedell also became police chief about three years after Jody's Mm -hmm. death. Some of those initial perjury charges 
were basically raised word about what happened against Jody's mother. I read in one of the articles, someone, I think it was a Detroit News one, someone speculating that Ray could have forgotten stuff or was maybe aggrandizing some of his involvement to look good for the cops. You know, reasons why he, there being consistencies. So, but here's another idea. The cops working on the people who can support his story so that they no longer believe it. Mm-hmm. Even yeah. innocently, why is it possible Ray's memory isn't clear, but no one questions Jody's mother's inconsistencies? Yep. You know, she had a traumatic experience, which affects your memory. I know you remember things very vividly, but you don't necessarily remember details or who said what or who did what when you've just discovered the dead body of your 11-year-old child. Also, you don't realize how susceptible you are to suggestion. Right. So the cops yeah. did their part to keep the community inflamed, helping to organize vigils, like I said, and reminding people that whoever did this was a monster. And in this community of 2000, they're telling Ray's family the same lies they're mm. telling him. In the last episode, I recounted what Jody's mother and her friend Julie McCann, Ray's sister-in-law of 20 years, said after he'd been arrested. And this wasn't even after he pleaded no contest and went to jail. This was just after he was arrested. There was no doubt in their minds, obviously, that he'd murdered Jody. Both families have suffered, Joe Gilson, Jody's mother said. He has torn apart two families. I started to notice discrepancies in things he had said, she told the reporters. She said that she had thought about how he acted and she had questions about it. He kept telling us to look in the cemetery over and over. What 11-year-old goes into a cemetery? Oh, God. And as I pointed out last time and earlier in this episode, she told police that night who had told reporters at the time of the murder that the kids went through the cemetery all the time. It was a shortcut. And if they're like us, they probably played there. And she told reporters, I'm glad he's in jail, not living his life. I believe he is involved. I hope he tells the truth so it doesn't have to go to trial. Julie McCann, who'd been married to his brother for 20 years at the time, said, when I saw his mugshot and looked into his eyes, it sent chills down my spine. Was she still married to his brother? Yes. Oh, okay. I assume she was. It doesn't say. His sister, Ann Nussbaum, told the Detroit News in 2017 that she was raised to believe the police were the good guys that they were the ones who always told the truth. Ray was her older brother, and when they were kids, he took her bowling and roller skating. Later, when she had a son and was raising him as a single mother, Ray helped out, driving him long distances to wrestling matches and cheering from the stands, she told the news. The Detroit News wrote, Yet, when police began whispering in Nussbaum's ear, she forgot that version of her brother and replaced it with someone capable of sexually assaulting and killing oh an 11-year-old girl. Quote, I was letting people fill my head with what they thought, she said. They would tell me I didn't know my own brother. Daniel Furlong initially entered not guilty pleas to one count of open murder, one count of felony murder, one count of kidnapping, and a count of second-degree criminal sexual conduct involving a child under the age of 13. He was facing a sentence of life in prison without parole. Furlong ended up pleading guilty in November 2015. He told investigators that on November 8, 2007, he lured Jody into his garage at his home in Constantine, telling her he needed her to help him move things. He put a plastic grocery bag over her head, tied her hands with zip ties, and sexually assaulted her. He placed her body in the front seat of his pickup truck, put her bicycle in the back, and eventually dumped her after it got dark at Constantine Township Cemetery. That's the short version. There's a longer version where he changes kind of the orders of what happens and some other stuff, but that's basically what happened. Hmm. He told police he acted alone and that he didn't know Ray McCann. He made his plea the next day before St. Joseph County Circuit Court Judge Paul Stutzman, the same judge who'd sentenced Ray on his plea. 
The kidnapping, open murder, and criminal sexual conduct were dropped, along with the ones in connection with the white pigeon assault. As part of the agreement, he also agreed to disclose any information he has about any other crimes he committed. And you may say, yeah, right, he's going to do that, but he was required to take a polygraph regarding other incidents, so obviously it's all solid. And he was (laughs) sentenced to 20 to 30 years in prison. He was 65 at the time, so it's a life sentence. Of the girl who escaped Furlong and White Pigeon, Mackenzie Stafford, Prosecutor McDonough said, I think Mackenzie had a guardian angel looking over her. And it was Jody. Well, you know who it wasn't? It wasn't the fucking police. No shit. That's for sure. When Furlong was first arrested, McDonough told the Sturgis Journal anything's possible (laughs) when asked if Furlong could be linked to other unsolved crimes involving children, including the 1997 disappearance of six-year-old Brittany Beers from Sturgis. Hmm. Two months later, after his sentencing, McDonough had more of a grip on it. He said Furlong's questioning was expected to last weeks and would focus on every possible situation to get to the bottom of everything we can. Mm-hmm. Furlong would get immunity in St. Joseph County if he testified truthfully to crimes there, including Brittany Beers, but it doesn't apply to anywhere outside the county. Another crime that was being looked into at the time with a possible Furlong connection was the 1988 death of April Tinsley in Fort Worth, Indiana. She was assaulted and strangled, her body found by a runner, jogger, (laughs) as the story said, and someone had scrawled a message on the side of a barn, they said an unknown person, (laughs) on the side of a barn left notes on several young girls' bikes in the Fort Wayne area, suggesting he was watching them and promised to kill again. Police reports say the 1988 killer had green hazel eyes and dark hair. It doesn't say how they knew that. They also recovered a, quote, sex toy at the crime yeah. scene. And some of the it says some of the letters, which I think must mean the notes on the bikes. I didn't have time to look, like, in the Fort Wayne papers about this crime. But some of the letters, so I assume, like I said, notes on the bikes, included photos of male genitalia hmm. that were taken on a green paisley bre- bedspread. Ew. Maybe that was supposed to be a clue. Oh, I know somebody with a who had a green paisley Ugh. bedspread in 1988. Jeff Smith of the Sturgis PD said officers' task now was to know the details of the Beers case, some of which had never been made public, and use good interviewing techniques to determine oh, if Furlong has any connection. Techniques. Yeah, but this is Sturgis, so maybe they'll be better than Constantine. Mm. The last story I can find about it in September 2017 said that Smith had made no progress. So this was two years about after Furlong went to prison. A Furlong, he said, he couldn't tell me the truth about anything. I can't eliminate him, but can't make him a person of interest. I just can't believe anything he says. And this is Maureen, I'm not a lawyer, but (laughs) I thought that if you made a plea deal and part of the agreement is you have to truthfully give all the details of all the crimes you've committed, you are violating that plea deal if you lie to the police and don't give them that information. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, what do I know? And this may sound familiar to anyone who listened to last week's episode. Smith did say there are still persons of interest, mm-hmm. but he wouldn't add any other information, citing that the case is still open and active. Oh, for crying out And loud. we have a couple people that we can't eliminate, but we can tie them to the case. We're one tip away. It's out there. It's that one piece of the puzzle we're missing. I'm not willing to give up hope that we'll solve this case. I think he's talking about Brittany Beers here. 
I still have the hope and optimism. We want closure for the family, the community, and ourselves. And that's the last story I could find about Brittany Beers. They're one tip away, so that one they don't, tip away. they're just waiting around for the tips. Right, this, this girl point. who was killed in 1997, just one tip away. Okay. Meanwhile, you'd think when Furlong was arrested in 2015, Ray would have gotten out of prison. Well. If you think that, you think wrong. Hmm. When Constantine Police Chief Mark Honeyset reinstated after Ray was convicted of perjury because apparently, as far as they were concerned, they've solved the case and they didn't need Bedell anymore. When he went to visit Ray in prison, McCann thought Honeyset was going to apologize and tell him he was going to be released. No, it was just more lying. Honeyset lied to Ray and said Furlong said they were friends. Are you kidding me? Honeyset, in an audio taped interview with McCann, tells McCann, the person we arrested is a friend of yours. I don't know who he is, Ray said, probably feeling, yeah, here we go again. And Honey said answers, I'm serious, man. Don't let the window close. Don't let oh, that happen. Don't fuck yourself. Whether it's Furlong or whether it's someone else, someone's holding all the cards and your face is on every one of those cards. What does that even mean? I know. I think it, I'd be like, can you explain I, your stupid I'm, metaphor? You know, I don't know, Chief Honey said, <laughs> but I feel like I've gotten to know him doing these two episodes and I yeah. feel like... He was not valedictorian of his high school class. <laughs> the Detroit News asked Honeyset why he did that to Ray, and Honeyset said they were still looking for information about how Jody died and whether other people were involved. Also, we wanted to give him a chance to clear up the information, he said. Oh, sure. Ray, as usual, held fast that he didn't have anything Good to do for with Ray. it. He got out of prison, a convicted felon. In December 2015, Channel 8 reporter Ken Kolker couldn't get his head around why Ray was still in prison. Mm. He tells Steve Drizzen and, and Laura Nyrider, but they're both of the Northwestern Wrongful Conviction yes, program. Laura. On wrongful convictions, false confessions, in an episode that dropped December 7th, quote, I started on this case because we were doing stories about the real killer who confessed and was getting sentenced to prison, and nobody was talking about what happened to Ray McCann. It's like, well, what about this guy who had nothing to do with it? Kolker got in touch with Drizzen a few months after Ray got out of prison and told him he should take a look at the case. At the time, Drizzen said police were still suggesting to the general public that Ray knew something about the crime. And this is after Furlong had said he didn't know Ray that he acted alone, <laughs> you know, I mean, it's like, what the fuck? I know. And Drizzen said, thank God for Ken Kolker for taking an interest to tell the story about Ray, because if it wasn't for him, I never would have known about the case. The Northwestern Wrongful Conviction Program and the University of Michigan Innocence Clinic took up Ray's cause. Their one job was to prove Ray innocent of the one perjury charge he'd been convicted of. That was a charge where police had sworn under oath that they had a surveillance tape showing Ray hadn't been at the tumble-damn path searching for Jody, which proved he lied about being there. Kolker managed to get a copy of the videotape. He did Freedom of Information requests. And I get the impression from the podcast that Kolker, McCann, Drizzen, and other people all watched the tape together for the first time. But when they watched it, they said you couldn't see anything, you couldn't make out people or cars or anything. So they went to the creamery that had the surveillance camera where the tape came from. Mm, I wonder if they sell ice cream. I, I know. I couldn't stop thinking about that. And the, <laughs> owner, and the owner said the camera, and oh, and to look at the camera, and it turned out the camera wasn't even aimed at the dam or the trail. The owner of the place of the camera hadn't been moved since 2007. It had always been pointing in the same direction. So it was pointing away 
from where anyone would have seen so my question to you is when he went on trial for this perjury he didn't he pleaded no contest oh he pled oh that's right i'm sorry right the state cop lied under oath about the video in a pre-trial hearing and they didn't have to show the video right because he pled okay right and he must have had a crappy lawyer because yeah i think the lawyer would have gotten it in discovery thanks lawyer his conviction was thrown out on december 7th 2017 and it was really weird. I could not find a Sturgis Journal article or any other article about it. The Detroit hmm. News had an article prior, a pretty good feature article before the court hearing. And I found stuff like on the Northwestern Innocence Wrongful Conviction Project website. But it's very strange of all the stuff the Sturgis Journal has. Yeah. They have no articles about that hearing. Because I was looking for some quotes from the judge who had been leery about it when he first convicted Ray. And to see what the judge said and couldn't find that. Anyway, prosecution didn't fight it. And the ruling, as I said, was by St. Joseph County Circuit Judge Paul Stutzman, the same one who had sentenced Ray when he pled no contest. One of Ray's lawyers, Greg Swigert, said, Although the tactics failed to coerce Ray into making a false confession, they did succeed at ruining Ray's reputation Mm. and destroying his relationships with family and friends. He lost his job, was estranged from his son, and his wife divorced him. In 2019, Ray got $40,000 through a Compensation Act in Michigan that became law in 2016 that allows those who are wrongfully convicted of crimes to receive up to $50,000 for each year spent in prison. McCann is remarried and moved out of town. He hopes to work to change the law that led to his wrongful conviction, a story from the Northwestern University website says. His lawyer again says, The perjury statute that coerced Ray to plead guilty needs to be changed. The threat of a life sentence for what could simply be differing recollections is too strong a tool for prosecutors Mm. and could lead to further wrongful convictions. Even Judge Stutzman, who accepted the plea and sentenced Ray, has said the law is terrible. The damage that still affects Ray is clear. For instance, Jody's mother told the Detroit News in December 2017 right before the court made that ruling, that is, quote, misstatements to police show he's hiding something. Maybe if he had told the truth like everyone else, he wouldn't have been a suspect, she said. Now, I don't blame her. She lost her kid and was manipulated by police for a decade. And she doesn't seem to realize that he didn't make misstatements to police, but, you know, the police lied. I blame the police. They're police that I'm sure a lot of people believe are good cops that people think are good cops and they were doing their jobs and maybe they just were a little too zealous or didn't get it right, but they're good cops. That's what people think. And that's what my whole issue with this thing where most cops are good is. Because I don't think stuff like that is good. No. And Steve Drizzen said in the Wrongful Conviction podcast, one of the arguments against allowing police officers to lie during interrogations is that it creates a culture in which lying is acceptable. Not only during interrogations, but when police officers come into court and testify about cases. And that may very well have been what happened here. And Maureen will say, yeah, it did happen here. The cop lied under oath about the videotape. The cop did. He lied. He Mm -hmm. knew what the videotape showed and didn't show, and he lied under oath. So, yes, it did happen here. Laura Nyrider said, when you allow police to lie, that sends a message that truthfulness is not essential to the task of enforcing the law. And, of course, it is. It's vital. And that's the story of Ray McCann. Wow. That's what, that's Laura saying that, so I still have a couple more cents, sorry. (laughs) 
Thanks, Laura. When they held a vigil for Jody this year, it was on her birthday, September 3rd, not the anniversary of her death like those previous ones I talked about last week have been. It would have been her 24th birthday. If anyone talked about her murderer, it didn't say so in the article. Those there talked about what a nice person she was and also that they wanted to bring awareness to child abuse and trafficking. They released 24 lanterns for each year since she had been Mm. born. And that's the story of the murder of Jody Parrick. Poor Jody. It's Steve Drizzen says on that podcast that it's the worst case of tunnel vision he's ever seen. Oh, God, yes. And I had heard that podcast before I looked all this stuff up. And when I was researching this, like the stuff I talked about last week, that the police chief and his just glomming onto the family. And, and yeah. I know there are people who find my perception of it overly cynical, but I don't. Because I think it was a manipulation of his. He managed to get the entire community to hate Ray. And so it ended up these quote-unquote lies, like I said, were basically Ray's recollections versus other people's recollections. People who had been told that Ray's DNA had been found on Jody and Jody's had been found on him. I mean, that should just be wrong. And I've thought that before this. Like when you watch, you know, a true crime documentary and, and the police say to somebody, well, how did we, f- how did your DNA get there? Or your friend, your friend in the next room is saying that you and he did it. I mean, that should just be wrong. In Britain, you cannot lie to yeah. a suspect about evidence. And I don't think in the U.S. you should be no, able to. you should definitely not be able and to. And as long as you can, any cop who yeah. does that is not a good cop. Get out there and fucking investigate the crime. And I know it's easy for me to say, but if they had gone about this a different way... And it'll be like when we talk about our rating in a few minutes, too. If they had gone mm-hmm. about this a different way, they would have gotten furlong earlier. It's like mm-hmm. they looked at it ass backwards. And you know? also, their interviewing techniques, it's a typical male way of doing it. Right. Instead and- of just talking and listening to somebody, you're trying to force them to say something you want to say. Just right. because they say it doesn't mean it's true. Right. When you're you start them to say what you want them what, to say, right. and when then you're you, throwing it back in their face. When you start from the premise, we know you did this. We just want to know why. You're not going to get from the person what really happened that night. No. And they talk about inconsistencies. You know, first of all, if you're driving around for two and a half hours looking for somebody, you're not going to remember exactly where you were at every know. minute and what you did. But when you have to constantly, constantly repeat it, you're not going to remember it the same way every time, you know, especially when it ends with the trauma of finding her. You know, when you have to hammer at a guy, lie to him, lie to his family, lie to the victim's family, and all you can charge him with is a trumped up perjury charge, you know, maybe you have the wrong guy. (laughs) You know, The thing is, there was evidence so if he had done it the evidence would have pointed to him i mean like him being a friend of furlongs which he wasn't but even if he was that wouldn't mean he had anything to do with the the murder right. there was no evidence right it's just right it, and i wonder too about like Brittany beers you know who was killed in 1997 and the girl from mm-hmm. fort wayne who was killed in the 80s you wonder how their investigations went you know, you just know if somebody had said, boy, that Mr. Furlong, he's always looking at me weird. And people would just like shrug said, it off. All you know? the, but all the kids 
probably right. knew, knew he was a creep. to avoid yep. him or that he was creepy. Right. And that's not saying, you know, he could have been perceived as being creepy and not been a murderer of children, but still pay attention. Because and- it's funny, they were saying, and I think it was just an unsettled Ray, you know, last episode, they kept saying, we think it's somebody from the community. It's not just some random person who came in here. But yet it doesn't seem like they were investigating the community in a way that would they didn't feel like doing the work that had to be done right probably a good time to transition to our recommendations (laughs) (laughs) so we have one of our duo yes we do recommendations and you said you wrote down the thing so i don't have them right okay in front of me good yeah i wrote down the thing the negative nelly rating system so we we both i only watched it once that's all right well i watched it twice because when i first watched it i wasn't thinking necessarily that i rate it i also you know wanted to actually take notes and not just go for my memory but before we we talk about it i just want to highly recommend though we're not rating it tonight trial four which is on netflix i haven't watched it yet it's very good and those of you from the boston area or new england will like it it's very bostony so we're gonna rate the ripper Ooh, the ripper and it's about the yorkshire ripper and i was reluctant to watch it at first because i'm like oh god i've seen so many things about that but uh it was good it's a four episode it was made made by women it was directed by jesse vile and eleanor wood yes and and i'm assuming so the first thing bad reenactments no there were no reenactments no there were very minor you can't even call them reenactments they would show you know, like a little lane or like where the body might have been found. Yeah. I it wasn't call them. really so much a reenactment or they'd show a radio. No. Narrative cliches. No. No. <laughs> Which is good. We're just going to be like, no. And there was no narrator. Yeah. Because what narrative cliches is stuff like, but there was a twist you never yeah. would see coming. Racial gender obtuseness. No. no. Obviously, I'm- there were people in it who had that. Who had gender obtuseness, but the film was kind of about that. You know, when we, and when we have an issue with racial or gender obtuseness, it's when the product, the film or the book or whatever is the thing that's displaying it. Good visuals. I thought the visuals were great. Great. A lot of archival, it was mostly archival archival footage. footage. And one thing I really liked is when it showed someone talking because this happened from the late 1970s into the early 1980s. It would show a photo of them. Yes. From then. then. Yes. And I really liked that. They, like um, the woman that got hit on the head with a the hammer. They showed her. her the, they all got young. hit on the head with hammers. Well, the, obviously the one that lit. The one that she was a 14 year old walking yes. down the street. Yeah, she was her. exactly the same age as me. Yes, I noticed that. And so was the 16 year old who got mm-hmm. killed. And also like when they talked about the original like Jack the Ripper. They had this kind of animated thing that I thought was good. Yes. I like, too, when somebody said something like a, a phrase would kind of type itself onto the screen. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So they used visuals really well, I Very thought. Very good. Very good. Yes. Yeah, we're zipping right through this. Missing Pieces. Uh, I, I, I'm no, taking away a point. You are? Okay. I had a few things. None of them big, but all together. 
I was unsatisfied with the stuff about the women who got away. Like, there's one, Olive Smelt, I think it was, who was one of the women before there was a a known murder, Mm -hmm. who speculated that he was scared off by someone who saw him. But there were several women who were whacked with the hammer, but who weren't stabbed with the screwdriver or the knife, Mm. and lived to tell about it. And... I would have liked more, even if nobody really knew, just some kind of speculation or something on why he didn't kill them. And so that was one of the things. The other one was, I thought in the third episode, they made some great points about how police are, and this still happens, it's up to women to protect themselves. You shouldn't be going out at night when there's somebody like this, blah, blah, blah. And the woman particularly, I think her last name was Bedell, who's with whatever the feminist, I'm sorry, organization is, made good points. But I think they really needed to connect the dots a little better by what the alternative to that would be. That it's not like, oh, we're just going to go out at night and let ourselves get killed. But that there needs to be more focus on police looking at how dangerous men are to women and doing more about it and not dismissing things. And I know it probably would have taken a whole nother episode to go into that unless you have, you know, if you're somebody without a lot of critical thinking skills, you would watch that and be left with the fact that, okay, then they just want to go out and let themselves get killed. Yeah, you know exactly. No, I felt the same way. Um, And another thing was that the final episode where given the impression that he kind of bamboozled the psychiatrist and stuff my question was and i don't know if this came up at trial or if anybody talked about it somebody who would be as nuts as he was presenting himself would also be that way Uh, there'd be signs of it in his life and were there people who knew him and I know they had some people who knew him who said, oh, he was a quiet guy and stuff, but I would have liked more information on, okay, was this a new behavior for him or did any of this present itself yeah, in his yes, life? So a, a lot of that, and there was, and I know that there was a lot of information to load into four episodes, but I felt to some of the information around some of the murders and how the person was found and what they found there and stuff, there were some some little holes and you know i like i you know maybe a lot of people don't care i kind of like the details on that and Mm -hmm. so i felt like like the guy said he ran over the body with the wheelbarrow and then you hear an announcer saying the body was there for anyone to see and i'm like okay so how did he run over it with a wheelbarrow without realizing he had done that you know yeah and then when he was finally caught and they found his tools that cop went back and found his tools in the bushes I'm like, how did the tools get from the car into the bushes? Did he throw them out of the car? Because mm-hmm. the sex worker who was in the car with him didn't say he did. did were his fingerprints on him? You know what I mean? I just, yeah. it's like, so So I'm just taking well, away a point yeah. for missing pieces. I'm going to take away a point for some of the same reasons, but also, from what I recall, the only person that they showed an interview with, with of his family was his father. Right, and, um, and it was an old interview. From it when was, he was an arrested. old interview, and it was short. This type of documentary, it's hard to know. They don't really have much explanation for things. Like they right. don't have someone saying, "Yeah, we tried to talk to some of his family members now, but nobody wanted to talk to us or whatever." But I would have liked to see more about his, like you were saying, about his background. Or did he right. seem to have a mental illness? Maybe it didn't come out until he was in his late twenties or mid twenties. So, but. 
They right. didn't talk to anyone in his family, but, and they probably didn't want to talk to anybody. Uh, right. They're probably sick of talking about their family member, the, you know, the most famous serial killer England but, has But I'm going to take a point off just because yeah, and I, I had questions. Okay. And the one person who it would have been good to, but obviously the interviews with him were done after, right after the Ripper was arrested, yes. um, was the guy he worked for who seemed to know him the best, but obviously that was 40 years ago, and who knows, you know, a lot of these people aren't around, because I would have loved for somebody to say, well, did he, I mean, I know you guys called him the Ripper at work as a joke, because he looked just fucking like him, but... It was funny, though, that people used to call him that. Well, it's because he looked like the composite. But you think there would be... Well, we can talk about that. Yeah, we can talk about that storytelling. Inaccuracies, anachronisms, no. No. Um, no, because, because they just showed archival stuff, yeah. And storytelling, I thought was great. When I first started watching, I was getting frustrated with the attitude towards women, but I'm glad that they kind of unspooled it. Yeah. That they let you get used to that before... You know, I think maybe the first episode they did have that one woman, you know, the reporter, mm-hmm. yes. say that she mm-hmm. was privileged and she needed to find out more about how these women lived. But the way they laid it out, I thought was very good so that you're really, really struck by the end at how that their total blinders and mm-hmm. male privilege kept yep. them from solving this case. I was happy to see that they, although they had talking heads, they were all part of the story. Yes. But they had a lot of women that were part of the story. They had that woman cop. And, the, you know, it wasn't a um, Elaine, common yeah. thing right, to be a cop back then. So they had people that were involved in it, but that were also women that had a, different, a lot different perspective yes. than the men. And I also thought... It was the kind of thing where you can look back, and if they hadn't been so misguided, they should have been able to put together the pieces yes. and figure out it was what's-his-name. Because they had, like, the five-pound note that they could trace yes. to that factory. He looked just like the—I mean, I want to say, buddy, there's this composite that looks just like you. Shave your stupid beard off. I know. You know? They had a composite that looked just like the guy. And I felt bad for that cop, Andy, who was one of my—I think yes, he was one of my favorites. I liked him. Because he had gone to his boss back then and said it's Peter Sutcliffe I have questions about this guy and he looks just like the identikit and the boss says I don't want to hear about that get the hell out of here and he doesn't have a Geordie act (laughs) Jesus Christ I know talk about tunnel vision they they should have I know it really showed to me why you know it was like the the absolute definition of how privilege fucks things up yeah and how having no other points of view no women's points of view. You know, they're doing all this ridiculous stuff. When you're fucking playing this recording in shopping malls or whatever and putting up these billboards and stuff, it's telling everybody, we don't have a clue. And yet they had three women who had attack- who he'd attacked before he attacked. You know, it's like they, they dismissed what women had to say so much that... That Like the girl who was 14 who went and told the cop and he just laughed her out of the police station. If one person had listened to women or Andy, (laughs) you know, or Or the guy in Sunderland who tried to tell them that the letters were a hoax, you know. I know. And they dismissed him because he was up there. He was a Geordie. Freshness. Yes. Yes. 
even though it's not a fresh store, it's right. not a fresh subject, the way they did it, I, I enjoyed it very right. much. Right. You know, at first I'm like, I don't want, want to watch. I've seen this on so many. I know, I didn't either. I started watching it because, you, you know. But then I just wanted to watch some true crime and... So I checked it out, and it was definitely the fresh way of looking at it, where one of the major themes is this assumption that women are sex workers when mm-hmm. actually they're poor, you yes. know, and are maybe possibly doing what they have to do to support a family, but also, you know, they're they're human beings just like everybody else. And exactly. the whole thing, like, well, he hates prostitutes. Like, that oh, was the, the first thing the cop said. You're like, what are you, an idiot? He's, you know, and okay, this was the 70s, but by now people know that it's because there's access to them and they'll get in your car. There's access to them, and also, if you do attack them, if you're not a serial killer and you're just a serial rapist, a lot of times they're not going to report it. Right. Or if they do, they're not going to be listened to. You know that they're looked down upon, or that they're living on the fringes and no one's going to miss him. Although he would put them where they would be found because he right. wanted them he to wanted find people. him. Except for that, although that one like he had under the couch that, yeah, that people was didn't weird. find for a month. I'm like, I wonder why he did that, that one. But didn't they say that he pulled her out? Was she? No, he went there and put a newspaper there. No but the, He went and put a newspaper there a month after, but he still, to oh. show he had been there, but he still had the couch on her, and her, just her hand was sticking out. Ew. Oh, God. Repetition? No. No. But they did repeat stuff, but it wasn't It wasn't right. annoying. It was just to, to remind you. Like when they talked to the one girl who got hit on the head. Her picture to remind you. Yes. But they, but they didn't have, like, the same like, pictures over and over and right. over. Well, and my issue with repetition isn't even the same pictures over and over. But it's, for instance, on 48 hours, when you're 45 minutes into the show, and they're still just repeating I know, all they the do a recap stuff. constantly. Right. Yeah. And because there were so many people it's amazing how many of those cops are still alive i know i was glad that they would have reminder shots and stuff and i like the fact too that they wouldn't just put the person's name up there once so then you're like wait who is this again but every time they showed somebody they would have their that's what i like and then the last one is beating the drum they did not. I don't know. In fact, they could have they maybe could, a little more. <laughs> they could have a little bit more, yeah. yeah. I thought they did a good job in showing the way women reacted. They were pissed off about it. They were pissed off about the way the cops were going about it. I don't know if I've ever seen it watching or listening to things about about the Yorkshire Ripper that women were that pissed off at the police. And I'm glad they were because... The whole focus on the fact that the that the victims were sex workers and then kind of discounting the ones, the young women, who were victims for the same reason because he was able to grab right. them. It right. wasn't because... He didn't mistake her for a sex worker. No. She was walking down the street. The, just like you said, the but tunnel also, vision and the... And also how it kept people from reporting things, like the one yes. woman, Mo, who was hit in the head with the hammer, yes. who was the student in Bradford, and they said at the hospital, this is just like what the Ripper does, and she goes, well, I'm not a prostitute. Yeah. So she didn't, you know, say anything to anyone, although the police must have known it was just like the Ripper, you know, the police came to talk to her and then never talked to her again about it. 
But then they were probably like, oh, well, she's not a prostitute, so it must be just some other weirdo that's going around yeah. hitting people on the head. Yes, yeah, so I gave it a nine. And me too. I gave it a nine too. And I highly recommend it. I do. It. Watching it twice, it was not boring to watch it a second time. No, there, I wanted it, to watch it a second time. Yeah, it was. I had the captions on because yes, it is very in strong I love our UK friends. But I would have had a lot of trouble understanding what people were saying. Yeah, so, and I had to look up Jordy. <laughs> I'm still not sure. I can kind of understand what they're saying because, right, if, like, somebody had it, a Maine accent. Yeah, or right. they had like a Georgia accent, or a, right. you know, whatever right. Minnesota accent. You'd know the difference. Yes. So next time I have to do something. You do. And what am I gonna do? I don't know. I don't know. I'll find something interesting Good. that everybody will enjoy, I hope. Because <laughs> I'm exhausted after my... Um, you know, it's weird. I had oh, nine days off from work or something. I, I feel like I ran a marathon every day. I don't know why I'm so tired. Me too. I'm the Part same of it way. is from eating cookies constantly. Yeah. But. Okay. Well, thank you, everybody. I want to thank all our patrons and wish them a happy new year, even though this is after the new year. Yes. And um, we'll, we're going to have a great 2021. I hope so. Yeah. Well, thanks for listening. Okay. Good night. You know, God, why can't I remember his name? <laughs> the fucking guy D- who was convicted. Um, Dan. Oh, God. Oh. <laughs> oh, Jesus Christ. I, I can't think of his name. It starts with an F. Let me look back. Scroll back oh, here. Jesus. I, I want to say Folsom, but that's not it. No, it's... Furlong. Um, furlong. Oh, my God. God. Oh my God.